From DOD to Congress and from the White House to Wall Street, the NatSec Need to Know podcast, an unrehearsed podcast presenting insightful discussion and forecasts of the major national security and defense news of the day. Hi, thanks for joining me for a special edition of the NatSec Need to Know podcast. I'm Roman Schweitzer, the TD Cowan Washington Research Group Geopolitical Security and Defense Analyst. And I'm joined today by my two counterparts in equity research, Kai Von Rumer and Gotham Khanna. We've just wrapped up our 45th annual Aerospace and Defense Conference in Washington, D.C. It was a great conference. We had a lot of insightful discussion, and I think we're going to talk about some of our views, what we've learned, and uh, where we found out uh, some new items and maybe been surprised a little bit. I'm going to turn it over to the guys in just a second, but what I want to do is go over some of the major themes that I think were meaningful. Some of them may not be surprises, but I think there's some new wrinkles involved that are going to be helpful for the year ahead. From my perspective, uh, I've got a series of uh, macro bullet points and then want to kind of dive into a couple of program takeaways from our conversations that I think are meaningful. Uh, One, uh, we're still optimistic that uh, defense appropriations will get done by March 8th. Uh, In typical Washington fashion, it will be as painful as possible, but we do think DOD will get its appropriations. Uh, We don't anticipate another CR beyond that. But interestingly, there might be a brief shutdown during that first leg of the CR. We also do expect the security supplemental and tax package to pass. We're waiting on the House to take up the security supplemental, the Senate to take up the tax package. Uh, But we are optimistic that these all do come together and get wrapped up by early March. Just interestingly, uh, Congress still does also intend to get work done on FISA. Uh, the intelligence uh, uh, collection uh, bill, controversial uh, bill that is, and then also the FAA reauthorization. Those those are two other uh, pieces of legislation. It's going to be a busy few weeks and you're going to have to stay tuned. One key takeaway uh, from all of the side conversations is that the fiscal 25 budget, which is due to be released uh, on or about March 11th, we'd probably take the over on that, is going to be look pretty bad. Uh, there's a lot of published press releases, our published press reports uh, about potential program changes. Uh, most recently, uh, uh, talk about the F-35 program being reduced, uh, the Army's decision on FARA and other aviation programs. Uh, that fiscal 25 budget is only up 1% year over year. Uh, so that means there's going to be some trade-offs. It's going to look ugly by design. The one thing we would just uh, encourage people to keep in mind is that that final budget is not going to be up uh, just 1%. Uh, I think it's more likely to be up 5%, but that depends on uh, election outcomes, and that'll be sort of the next overhang for the following year. A um, couple of just quick points to, to rip through macro. Uh, DOD still has significant concerns about supply chain recovery, source materials, and critical minerals or supplies. Um, there's also too much of a dependence on China for commodities and electronics, uh, and a focus on... Um, Areas like even, um, you know, as uh, uh, specific as seabed mining uh, and processing rare earths domestically. Uh, We published a report earlier this week on unmanned systems and uh, the DOD's replicator initiative. That's a major theme uh, and we think will be a a focus area of uh, spending. We've got more conviction after our conversations during a conference. Um, CCA. Uh, The Air Force's CCA program remains a a major area of interest for both traditional and non-traditional players. 
Um, and DoD is going to continue to use a con- an interesting contract mix of OTAs, fixed price, LRIPs, and Defense Production Act authority. Uh, global demand for foreign military sales continues to be robust across the board in Ukraine, NATO, Asia, and the Middle East. Aircraft, unmanned systems, counter UAS, long-range fires are all areas of particular interest. And the one thing that I would say is an interesting comment was Ukraine has shown that it's not just the exquisite defense systems that matter. But some of the basics like uh, like ammunition and 155 uh, are of uh, major interest. And again, just on the on the supply chain and sourcing, uh, DOD does have a new national defense industrial strategy. They intend to use Defense Production Act uh, as well as uh, loans and loan guarantees in critical market segments. Uh, you know, again, I mentioned some of those uh, basic raw material and commodity areas. Uh, a near-term focus is on microelectronics, semis, casting and forgings, uh, critical minerals, and solid rocket motors. I'm going to get into some of the program specifics, but I think for now, what I want to do is uh, I will turn it over to uh, one of my colleagues, Gotham Khanna, uh, so that we can get some of his uh, specific takeaways. Thank you. Spent a couple of days with a number of companies at the conference. Uh, I thought what was interesting on the commercial aerospace side was uh, both ATI and Carpenter some of the upstream jet engine billet manufacturers have not seen any destocking, order cancellations, pricing, or backlog deterioration, despite the change to the production rate on the 737 MAX, where it's being held steady for longer given the FAA's more stringent oversight of Boeing's processes. So for those guys, it looks like they're still producing maybe below the underlying rate. And so there's an opportunity for them to continue at this rate and continue to ramp as well. We met with General Electric as well. It was interesting. They were actually a little bit less positive on the pace of supply chain improvement. They mentioned it continues to be a slog. They've deployed 50% more engineers at their supplier facilities to help debottleneck the supply chain, which just tells you how slow some of the supply chain improvements have been to manifest. They were very positive on the aerospace aftermarket. And even the the old engine aftermarket, the CFM-56, through as far as 2028, as they're seeing an increase in scope at shop visits and, and pricing also as a tailwind. But as they've said before, profitability faces some pressure from mix within the aftermarket and because of the rising OE delivery mix, especially as the GE9X begins to ship later this year. Heiko's management team echoed GE's bullishness on the aerospace aftermarket. They noted that initial customer response to the WenCore acquisition has been very positive. On the defense side, both LHX and HII mentioned that supply chain and internal labor attrition and productivity continue to improve. Uh, Leonardo said the same thing, but mentioned that certain regions remain tough for for labor, specifically Milwaukee as one city where the job market is particularly tight for engineers. All of the defense firms we met with were fairly bullish on the prospects for a DOD budget being passed sometime in Q1 and ultimately for defense funding to be well supported in an election year given the broader geopolitical threat environment. Kai, I'm going to turn it over to you for your thoughts. So thanks, Gotham. So uh, I've got a couple of thoughts here too. So uh, commercial air transport demand and pricing certainly look like they remain robust. Uh, China is taking planes from Boeing. 737 and 87 are sold out to 2728. Boeing is still working several active campaigns, Airbus targeting 800 aircraft delivery. So demand clearly not the issue. In the commercial air aftermarket, 
and pricing also remain strong. We're still, you know, really bullish on this sector, and, and there are a fair number of reasons. One is still healthy global traffic demand, particularly for wide bodies, challenging OE delivery targets uh, that don't meet really what the airlines want. The impact of the close FAA oversight of Boeing, we think that's likely to impact deliveries in the first half. And the push out of MAX 7 and 10 deliveries due to Boeing's decision not to seek an engine anti-icing certification exemption. In addition, you know, the increase in A320s on the ground as Pratt fixes the powdered metal issue kind of restrains capacity. So we think airlines are going to have to spend to keep flying what they already have in their fleet. And as a result, while provisioning for some items may be down as airlines have tried to restock in 2023, the pricing environment remains strong and suppliers are getting near 10% price hikes this year. And that's close to what they got last year. On the BizJet side, demand also continues healthy, um, maybe stronger than some investors think. That's because backlogs have expanded significantly for all the producers over the last two years, and lead times now extend out over 18 to 24 months. Unlike the air transport market, this is a constraint. Retail buyers don't want to wait more than 12 to 18 months for a plane. Fractionals firm up their schedules 12 months out, and corporates may wait 18 to 24 months, but likely not longer. So everyone expects book to bill to be reasonably good, but we think it's going to moderate to 1.0 or maybe a little bit lower. So, you know, commercial demand, broadly speaking, is good, but the elephants in the room are the ability to get planes through the FAA certification and the industry's ability to deliver. On the certification issue, uh, the FAA has taken longer than expected to certify the Gulfstream G700 and the MAX 7, even before the Alaska Air incident. But the Alaska incident, while it's not a design issue, has put a spotlight on safety, and if anything, uh, it's expected to cause the FAA to be even more careful, i.e. slower, in approving new or derivative designs and probably in lifting the ceiling they put on Boeing's production rate. This clearly is an issue for new, all new designs like eVTOLs, where the FAA has yet to settle on what certification requirements should be, but it's also a, a factor for derivative aircraft like it's been for the G700. So the other ma major issue is supply chain and labor, which have prevented commercial and defense companies from meeting schedules. On the supply chain issue, things continue mixed. Most companies, including Boeing, GD, and Lockheed, and Mo, say things have improved versus 2023, or at least are stabilizing. But many companies, like Textron, also complain of continuing whack-a-mole situations where shortages can change from day to day. Furthermore, RTX and Lockheed are still struggling with rocket motors. Castings generally are noted as an issue among commercial suppliers, although microelectronics have improved. And for example, GE has more engineers and its suppliers than it did in 2022. On the plus side, A&D labor markets generally do look like they're getting looser, 
uh, Boeing claims no problems in getting workers with an 80% acceptance rate on all the offers they make, although training still remains an issue. Lockheed claims it turned the corner on labor availability in mid-2023. However, Textron continues to see difficulty in attracting qualified labor in Wichita, but that's probably because that's where it and Spirit dominate as manufacturing employers. Uh, on the plus side, Textron needs to hire fewer workers in 2024 than it did in 2023. And on the plus side, there's a uniform agreement that attrition rates have started to decline. So we think there is some hope that the supply chain could get looser as we move through the years and allowing output to hit targets. Well, great. Thanks, guys. Those are uh, re really important insights, and uh, and thanks for sharing. Uh, before we close out, I do just want to cover kind of four program-specific issues based on our conversations and, and some of the uh, recent uh, things I've published to kind of refresh uh, thoughts on, on where things are at. Uh, so one on the F-35 program. Uh, I, I've talked about, you know, cer certainly uh, some of the some of the bigger risks in the program, uh, TR3, uh, Block 4, uh, and some of those other issues. Um, I've kind of kind of changed my view a little bit. I think I'm a little bit more positive. Uh, certainly, there are some tough months ahead for the program. Uh, obviously, uh, TR3, they're they're trying to get that software uh, next software batch uh, certified or or tested. Uh, flight tested, lab tested, flight tested, and then certified and moved into production. It's gonna it's gonna be a busy few months, uh, and uh, and if they miss that that calendar can get extended a little bit. Obviously, uh, Lockheed is looking at a June timeframe that could extend um, depending on how many increments or loops they need to go through on the software testing. But you know we've we, we heard the comment that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, I think that's true. Uh, I don't think that light is a train. Uh, I, it might be daylight, but uh, I, I don't think that's the big uh, a big issue um, beyond this year. Let's call it that. I mean, I think this is this is software engineering. This is not basic science and discovery. Uh, I think they, I think they can get over this hurdle, but probably not soon enough for for a few people uh, either running the program. Uh, or uh, in the companies uh, dealing with this. One of the issues I've been sort of uh, that I'd flagged that I've kind of harped on after uh, the PEO's testimony in December is this concern about Block Four. Um, block Four is probably seventy or eighty capabilities that kind of follow on after after the TR three tech capability is there. That you know the the, the PEO's stated risk is in this testimony, uh, and, and I think uh, I've come away from the conference kind of getting the sense that I think that'll be restructured or phased a little bit better. I think that I think the department realizes it doesn't want to get into a situation uh, like it did with TR3, where it doesn't have off ramps uh, and it's a kind of go or no go decision that's going to impact production. So I, I think Block Four is probably going to be de-risked, maybe broken into some components or things like that. That's a TBD, but I think it's probably going to be resolved before it becomes a problem. One issue that has been perpetual is what's the long-term rate look like? Uh, you know, is 156 sustainable? You know, with a foreign demand coming into the program, you know, it's it's kind of like uh, 156 or better, probably. Uh, I think some of that will depend on the finalized numbers for the in the U.S. budget cycle. You know, is it going to be the 83 that's currently in the FIDIP, or is it something less than that? And then how do you kind of sort start start rolling in those foreign buys or those you know those new foreign orders. So certainly demand's going to be robust. 
The one interesting comment uh, that I heard, though, that I think is meaningful is that there's a view that production isn't going to go above 156 until the the government and, and industry can support all of the aircraft it has in the field, That right? That they want to get the mission capability rate, the sustainment, global sustainment uh, up better, uh, that there, there's no point in building more planes if you can't support them in the field, which I think is an interesting perspective and, and might be one of those uh, sort of uh, dual challenges, right? Production is one aspect. Um, but the logistics enterprise, the support enterprise behind it is also another big one. And then one thing, just a, just a flag to pay attention to, uh, being an acquisition nerd, uh, it does look like the program is on track for uh, milestone C uh, sometime this spring, March, or, or perhaps after. Uh, that is a big decision, right? That means that they are technically uh, uh, out of EMD and, a, uh, and into full production. That is a major milestone. Uh, one probably a long time coming for this program. So pay attention to that. And that does mean that the program would be eligible for multi-year procurement uh, or block buys or something like that. So uh, it, it's a big, meaningful milestone. Uh, I do want to touch on uh, changing gears a little bit to another program of interest, uh, really in, in the Department of Air Force, collaborative combat aircraft. It is a, a major area of uh, focus, both for the Air Force and uh, and probably DOD writ large in terms of the incorporation of unmanned wingmen and things like that. Our understanding is there are five companies involved in the airframe piece, uh, and that's been sort of publicly reported. And then more recently, uh, the Air Force uh, Secretary has announced that, that that will be down-selected within the next few months to two or perhaps three companies, depending on pricing and whether there's cost sharing involved and things like that. We also understand there are 25 uh, or more companies involved in the mission systems piece of the program. We kind of understand right now that the, that the Air Force is going to be the integrator for the, for the platform or for the system itself, rather, the family of systems, and that there are some government-referenced ref architecture pieces of the program. So that might be sensors or payloads or weapons or things like that that the government is controlling and, and will require interfaces and use some of those other sort of 25 companies doing the mission architecture. But in terms of the airframe itself, the companies uh, pursuing that will be the prime responsible for integration of those sort of government-directed uh, pieces of it. So kind of an interesting wrinkle. Uh, this first competition is, um, is going to go down two or three. Uh, quantity is still TBD. But interestingly, uh, we believe there's a second increment or increment two. Uh, this, this first batch is being called increment one. Uh, increment two will be sort of the follow-on. Uh, could be a different mission set, could be in a, a different type of vehicle. Um, so stay tuned for more on that. Also, just want to touch on the, the GBSD program, ground-based strategic deterrent. Uh, you know, obviously that program is in a Nunn-McCurdy breach situation. Basically, as we understand it right now, um, that is going through a OSD or Office of the Secretary of Defense mandated review that is uh, not within the Air Force's control. OSD now needs to make a determination of whether the program gets canceled uh, or restructured. We do not believe it will get uh, canceled. Uh, we do believe it will be restructured. The Air Force earlier this week sort of announced some reshuffling, a, a big effort, a sort of re-optimization. Uh, as part of that effort, they're going to set up a new PEO for GBSD and Minuteman 3, sort of the ICBM uh, leg of the triad. Uh, so certainly, uh, I think even the Air Force understands there's going to be some restructuring of the oversight of the program. 
Uh, I think it's also possible there could be, in a, in a restructuring, there could be some changes in the contracting. I don't think uh, necessarily that, that Northrop Grumman has any work taken away from it. Uh, I think there might just be some, um, maybe some different contract breakouts or, or cleanse or different types of contracting vehicles associated with the various elements of the program. Uh, as we understand it, there's a, a root cause analysis being conducted uh, and, uh, and OSD and the Air Force will sort of determine where the majority of that cost growth is. You know, obviously you've got the missile component, you've got the silo refurbishment, you've got the ground uh, command and control systems. I think it's been suggested that, you know, the silo upgrades and the ground command and control systems are some of the culprits in this case, you know, whether that's a function of uh, inflationary cost pressures or uh, even things of, you know, relying on uh, on older infrastructure that, you know, is that was built in the 1960s and needs to be uh, needs to be refurbished. And the last program, just to uh, it wouldn't it wouldn't be uh, a conversation without uh, talking about the B twenty one program. You know, obviously Northrop has had to uh, to take it uh, the charge related to LRIP, but uh, you know we get the sense that uh, that the Air Force is still um, pretty pleased with where that's at. Um, obviously, the Air Force is is not covering that charge, so it's not a cost related. To, it's not an overrun that the Air Force has to cover in budget. But the interesting thing that we that was suggested, or at least you know we think is is probably the case, is that the program's still meeting its acquisition program baseline, which uh, you know in terms of cost and schedule. So uh, it does seem like that's on track. So you know, so that's a very uh, at least good indicator that uh, the Air Force is probably pretty pleased with that, uh, even if the uh, the financial result is not what the uh, desired outcome uh, was for uh, or has been for the company so far. Well, that's it for me. I think I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap it there. Kai Gotham, uh, thank you very much for your insights. Uh, always appreciate it, and always enjoy the opportunity to collaborate with you on this uh, this great annual event that we hold. If you didn't make it this time, uh, we sure hope to see you next year. Uh, we think you're missing out. It's the best opportunity to to hear from companies, uh, hear from uh, government policy people, and just kind of rally up and get 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 your head on straight for the year ahead. Thanks, everybody. Uh, appreciate your time, and uh, look forward to talking with you again.